Well, good morning, Episode 3 listeners. This is a live takeover of the podcast in the People's Republic of Riverina. My name's Gabriel Chan, formerly Guardian Rural Editor, now relaxed columnist and bookkeeper. (laughs) I'm coming to you from Wiradjuri land in the southwest slopes of New South Wales, thanks to the traditional owners. And I have Matt Dalgleish, a.k.a. Meat Watcher, and Andrew Whitelaw, a.k.a. Wheat Watcher, locked in a box wearing <laughs> hockey masks. But the good news is I have hockey stick. I have the hockey sticks, so my job is to poke the bears for this, the 200th episode of this podcast. Who would have thought that we'd all still be listening in 200 <laughs> episodes? Stranger things have happened. Um, so good morning, boys. Good morning. Morning, Morning, Gabby. Morning, Gabby. Now, you will know that I'm a pretty old political reporter, old being the operative word, but I recently did a search of Hansard. If you put in Hansard and you add live export to that search term, you come up with the phrase, a very dodgy firm. What happened there? I think that I think that refer, it doesn't refer necessarily to me. I think it refers to Matthew. Well, it refers. I'm, to, it re- I'm guilty by association. Isn't that a yeah. Yeah, I guess there's um, you know, when you well, actually, before you go on, Matt, it's yeah. probably it's probably important that you uh, ensure that you're very careful in what you say. I know that's what because, I was, because I was think that, some, yeah. some some people have parliamentary privilege and can say what the if they want, yeah. um, whereas um, we don't have that uh, benefit. Yeah, so. no, that's true. And and some people with that parliamentary privilege have already been a little bit litigious, haven't they? In the, so, um, mm. yeah, you gotta you gotta be careful what you say publicly when you don't have that privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, we were we were yeah episode three, which is not the egg watches, but episode three was the business Andrew and I run was was. Or right at the end of a session based around our live export report we delivered to the panel, we were described by an unnamed Green senator as being um, as being dodgy. And there being is, dodgy and probably probably worthwhile explaining why we're considered to be dodgy is because of the fact that we had uh, been funded to do a report on live export and the impact of phasing it out, along with some work around. If you were phasing out, how to minimise the impact on Western Australian farmers? But you know, Matt has in the past been a supporter of live export. Still and, am. And Still it am. Was, and it was sort of picked up as being that why can you get somebody to write a report on live export if they're a supporter of it? But mm. I think that's a bit of BS as well because you can write something that is independent and neutral and data based, even if you don't mm. necessarily sort of support the closure of life. I don't support the closure of any industry by government. Mm. It should be but there was um there was also another firm that was named by that senator, which I won't name again because I don't want to get any legal letters. But there was in the same in that same handside there was another firm named a couple of times by that senator and, and they were they were using them as the benchmark of what was appropriate consulting work and and, and behaviors. But that that firm was one that's done a swag of work for Animals Australia. So um yeah, I don't know if you can use them as the benchmark of, you know, correct economic analysis versus our dodginess, so to speak, because you know, just because of um, because of what we put out there doesn't prescribe to your views on the ending of live export or not. Can we can we just go into the kind of substantial issue though around live export? And you've said you're a supporter of um, live export, Matt. But mm-hmm. um, do you think social license in Australia? is going to overrun the live export trade. <laughs> I just I just hate that term, social licence. You know, like I, I know what you mean. It describes a thing, right? It describes a real thing, which is that uh, consumers may be put off by the idea of exporting sheep around the other side of the world in order to no, absolutely. Like, like, cut their heads it, off. It is the voters that dictate what the government does, in effect, most of the time. And if something's popular and and live export, you know, it's been on a death knell 
since that Wasi Express in 2018, was it, Matt? Yep. It's pre-COVID anyway. And, like, it wasn't, and to give Murray Watt his dues, it wasn't necessarily the Labour Party that, you know, the Labour Party's just putting the final sort of nail in it. But it was the Nationals who caused a lot of the downfall of it because they introduced that moratorium between June and September, which removed a lot of the uh, economic benefits of doing live exports. So, yeah, but a social license is going to become that bigger thing. But it's one of these things that I think agriculture is pretty poor generally in terms of getting its message across on the good things we do. I think I think part of it too is that that obviously the footage from that Awasi Express was horrible, right? And so that you got that so that reaction with regards that there was a loss of social license because of that, you know, how bad that footage was and that event was. But subsequent to that, the sector has improved, has changed um, standards, has uh, you know, and, and we're seeing in the results of the data of things like mortality, which isn't the be all and end all of welfare, but mortality is a good objective measure. Mortality rates for live sheep now, with those other practices that are that are improved, have reduced down to the same levels that you see in the live cattle trade. And the live cattle trade is one that the government supports, but when it you know, but when it comes to the decision around live export, they're ignoring the improvements that have been made, they're ignoring the data, they're ignoring the science, showing that it can be done adequately. Um, you but, know, and but, so... But, but devil's, devil's avocado on that one, yeah? Hmm. Um, if you look at... Labour did go to two elections on a ban on live exports hmm. of cattle, hmm. of, of sheep, yeah. sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you could argue that, well, they're just doing what they said they would do. No, that's true. That's true as well. And, and then... Yeah. At some point, there'll be another government that could reintroduce it. But like can I just ask for perspective, like how much of the flock is live exported, just so that listeners oh, perspective? Yeah, nationally, well, there's none in the east nowadays. Ever since 2018, yeah. the eastern states don't spend any, apart from the odd one on a, on a plane occasionally, but it's 98%, 99% of what goes out now goes out out of West Australia. Um, but and, how and, much? How much of the fl- the Australian flock does that represent? Is it like two percent, three percent? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's about that. Yeah, like two, that. yeah, yeah. It's small. It's small. So, if, in terms of West Australian turnoff, it's about eleven percent of their turnoff. But in terms of national turnoff, it's like two percent or so. Yeah. So, so do you think there's an issue also for Eastern State sheep producers that this is this becomes such a big thing in terms of farm ag? ag- advocacy uh, and maybe consumers hold strong views about it uh, or a portion of consumers do and then and yet it's such a small amount like we're arguing over such a small amount yeah I think it, I think it's I think so, the the alarming side from a more broader farm advocacy perspective though I think is that the fact that the government can make a decision that's clearly not based around the science or the data, that's just really something about sentiment. And sometimes with that public sentiment or, or um, you know, social licence, if you want to describe it as that, that can be manipulated by, you know, um, not necessarily factual kind of recollections of what, of what goes on. You know, there's a lot of lobbying that goes on from both sides. There's a lot of marketing and spin that's put across it. Um, well, remember, remember, Matthew, the first podcast we ever produced yeah so was on social license was on social license with me and yeah. bobby herman yeah not that wasn't an ag watchers one that was a previous Some podcast one. um yeah. but that was the whole point of it like social license can be manipulated yeah but also it's incremental so if you have if you go from say if you ban caged eggs you then you can move on to banning barn raised eggs and then you mm. can just move on and on right through the supply chain as improvements are made but at the end of the day, it's it's down to votes. But but um, from a pol- from a policy perspective, when a government makes a decision that's just backed in by because we promised to do it, but yeah, it doesn't necessarily but it doesn't necessarily follow the data or the science. You know, there's no there's, real. Uh, there's a lot of things. Under- there's a lot of things. grow up. But that's a, so, but that's a, that's a scary that would be a scary proposition to people in that policy setting that you can see decisions being made on the basis of just a whim, right? That's that's and that's why I think you know you've seen this reaction from the likes of national farmers and other organisations that that there's a concern that 
if they can do this with live export, what can they do with other things? You know, Murray Darling, Darling Basin, like you know, decisions, of, blah, blah, get, blah, whatever. Get rid, of, get rid of negative gearing, you know, that type of thing. Mm. But things things don't happen because of how much stuff happens because of science. Bugger all. Things happen because it's the vibe of it. Let's stay on meat. Let's stay on meat because right now uh, in sale yards around me, the prices are plummeting. Um, and a lot of consumers ask me, why, if you have uh, such low prices, why are we still paying a lot in the supermarket? Well, I'm going to disagree. I'm going to, I'm going to disagree with that one. Really? Because I went into Coles last night, and I they do like a really good packet of lamb ribs. And normally, apparently, it serves four, but that's nonsense because it just serves me. But it's. Uh, Used to be eighteen dollars. Now it's down to thirteen dollars. This well, man they, is not getting sponsorship from Coles. <laughs> but it's 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 the cost of living crisis is over. Well, that that is that, it over. It's oh, over. It's done. Relate. Now that that, dro- that that drop in retail prices has only just come in the last week or so. So and yeah, and certainly the the sale yard price have been coming off for a while. Although the sale yard prices have recovered a little bit the last week or so as well. So maybe that that gap between. Sale yard coming off and retail not moving is is slowly changing now. Just it tell does... me, is the data out there to show a proper price breakdown between the return for, say, the difference between farmers, processors, and retailers? Like, can we see that data? Because I once saw uh, a graph or a, a bar chart from Henry Dimbleby who ran the UK national food policy and it had quite clear return average returns obviously Mm. on capital uh employed um for each of the kind of uh stages of food processing from the farm to the plate can we do that in australia not 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 as not as you've described it there's a couple of things We, we we do a kind of estimate of the, the farmer's share of the retail it, spend. It, but the UK does it through the Agriculture and Horticultural Development yeah. Board. Yeah. So, so they get the government funds a program to actually record all that information. Uh, but we actually did look at something, Matt, didn't we? We were talking about that. Did you start that one? Well, in terms of looking at retail pricing. Yeah, no. Well, the, yeah, we do. We that's what I was just saying. We do publish an estimate of you know farmer share of retail, but that's that's a very simplistic look at, at what Gabby's describing is an actual proper hmm. data that, that that explains the whole supply chain and where like what the US have you know in their red meat space. We we don't have anything like that here in Australia. Absolutely. Yeah. So there is a lot of opaqueness to what happens through the processing end, what happens all the way through to the retail side. You know, when it comes to red meat and and ACCC. You know the 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 report they put out on on red meat transparency from the sale yard right the way through to retail and it focused on the beef space back in 2015. They they kind of outlined that there was a lot of gaps there in terms of what's available uh, data wise and 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 what's available to explain what's exactly going on in, in that in that industry. So why not? Why don't we have that if other comparable countries have that? Well, maybe uh, maybe somebody should fund two young. Well, one young and one older analysts <laughs> to, to do that. Um, I, I think from a because there was a while a little uh, it was a few years back now where even because um, obviously MLA published slaughter data on cattle um, on a weekly basis and there was a stage um, it might have been back in twenty nineteen or something like that where for a handful of weeks the, the abattoirs stopped reporting the slaughter data to to MLA. Because there were concerns that it was being used by competitive players outside of Australia that we 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 compete with in ex- beef export space to our disadvantage as an industry. So um, there is a little bit of a concern given how much Australia exports into the red meat space, whether it's sheep meat or whether it's beef. Um, you know that they're highly competitive areas. We've got some pretty robust um, countries that compete with us in, from South America or the US in beef or New Zealand in sheep meat. If we and we, you know, it doesn't matter which which red meat you look at, whether it's sheep meat or beef, um, give or take any any year, we we export about seventy percent of those two products that we we produce. Um, so we're quite we're quite exposed to the export market. And if we there's a worry that if we provide too much 
detail of what's going on in terms of the industry, then that could be used you know, to our disadvantage by our, our very robust competitors in, in that red meat space. Um, that's so one choosing, concern. We're, right, we're choosing export over, over consumers there. To a degree, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. The, the, So then the Australian consumer or the farmer might not have the same level of clarity or trust in the system because it's so opaque, but it's also opaque to some, you know, to, oh, it's argued that it's opaque to a degree to protect the industry when it competes internationally as well, which is a bit of a, I guess, a balancing act. You've got to try and weigh up who in the supply chains should be looked after the most. Yeah. Is it the farmer? Is it the consumer? Is it the, the members through the supply chain? Um, mm. Mm. Now, you guys put your chain mail on and mounted your trusty steeds and rode into the valley of death to wage a holy war on fertiliser prices. <laughs> How's that going? I don't know what you're talking about. That is a that is a market where we could have more transparency because we don't we don't have a big export exposure there, do we? We just import well, that's, it. So. That's well, what I wonder. Like you know, you. I'd like. Make, I'd like. I'd like. Meat to... has to be opaque, but fertilizer prices. We want full transparency. Oh. <laughs> I'm not saying meat has to be opaque. I think there's probably room for improvement in our system. Absolutely, but all I'm saying is I wouldn't want to go hammer and tongs divulging everything like the us have a very transparent system and it's and it's legislated and so there's no there's no kind of you can't get out of it um but then when you look at the us beef industry they they consume at home they consume 90 percent of what they produce in beef so they're only really exporting 10 percent of their their production so therefore while it's still you know they still have a competitive market the, the biggest market for the us industry in the beef space is their own consumer so they can they can fairly comfortably allow all of that information to be accessed by anyone. Um, you know, we just have to be a bit more careful, I think. But it doesn't mean we can't improve. We could still improve um, transparency, absolutely. So, but mm, just on but the- I just I just want to, I want to go back though. Yeah. And, and you said that we had mounted our chariots and <laughs> trusty steed. I think it was trusty steeds and. Yeah, yeah. Wait the holy war and cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war. I would I would suggest that it was the opposite way. Really? In, in that what, we in what way? In that we just reported on fertilizer. Yeah. In a in the same way that we report on every other market, and it created a few kerfuffles, and people were people were not happy about that. I think the word was. Uh, we prefer it if you didn't talk about fertilizer because it's not in the interest of us. Well, I think, I think Matt wrote in the very esteemed publication of the Guardian. Oh, that was that was the other time I was in the Hansard was when I was when I got quoted by oh, another, yeah. a different Green Senator used our information to their benefit, but then all of a sudden, when it, it regards fertilizer, they were happy to use us, but when it comes to and the jokes, well, export, the, we're the, dodgy. Then the jokes on them. They're calling you a dodgy <laughs> company when Matt's a card-carrying Greens member. <laughs> So. <laughs> well, the quote, the quote yeah. is, though, from Matt, Australian farmers are being taken for mugs, treated like mushrooms by being kept in the dark and fed a load of crap. Yeah. So just for the listener who's not across this, can you just describe why you thought the fertiliser uh, supply chain was ve- uh, opaque? Um, well, there's no... there's happening? no. There's there's no published, you know, kind of like any other commodity around the country, you can go to a fairly objective place and find published information on pricing, um, you know, at any time, whereas in the fertiliser space it doesn't really exist, right, that kind of access to. And and I think the fertiliser industry as a whole, I think they like the idea of it being opaque and they can, they can kind of control the narrative, you know, and so that's where we come in and, Andrew's probably one to speak to it as well because he's the one that looks at it more regularly than me. But, um, you know, when we can come in and, and show data that maybe explains well, what's I, going I, on. I, like I think that's all we've done is show data and that's it. There's no there's no opinions. It's just data. No. Apart so, from- Andrew, Andrew, for people who to, don't to- um, understand it or maybe coming from a, from a complete kind of farmer perspective we usually will get a call early in the year and, and you know, say, buy your, we'll buy. say you've got to order because there's <laughs> it's, a shortage it's right? running out it's running out so, yeah. so what what's going on there so that's that's what i'm talking about is there's uh, imbalances of information imbalances of it information asymmetry if you want to use the technical term and mm. uh, we sort of see this sort of view of 
there's no real, other than what we produce now, there's no other way of really seeing what the fertilizer price is without calling up. And if, if Matt calls up, he gets one price. If you call up, I get another, you get another price and vice versa. But then it makes it really hard to start um, comparing the actual market. So you can't suddenly say, oh, well, how much is it in Saudi Arabia where we get most of our urea? So it's very, what we want to be looking at is saying, well, how do we compare relative to the rest of the world? What is our relative price? Because then we can see whether a price is good or bad or normal. But going back to, um, go back to what you mentioned about like the running out of fertilizer. Like we need to get some better supply chain people in the fertilizer industry because every year they're just on the cusp of running out of fertilizer. It's like you'd think, you know, maybe maybe they should be looking at just now. It's what is it, November just now? They should be looking and thinking, well, maybe we need to order some in for next year because the last 10 years we've ran out every year, which like we had, we had, a, we had a conversation with Chris Lawson a few weeks ago. And he's, he's a fertilizer analyst out of the US, independent, same as us. And uh, he agreed with our numbers that show that this year, there hasn't been a shortage in Australia. Yes, there's been shortages in some areas, but in reality, we've had record supplies of urea within Australia. But it, so it went from it, it went it, it went from being described as a shortage by the fertilizer sector to an apparent shortage. Well, I'd, I'd, I'd nearly describe it as a manufactured shortage, shortage, personally. So is, you're saying it's a manufactured crisis every year in order to sell fertilizer? Is that what it what it feels yeah. like? That's what it feels oh. like. Um, um, see, I, I like to stay um, on the uh, on on the fence, and I would just say, look, it's uh, poor planning from the federal industry, but like it's it's going to be every year. Next year, they will say the same. Get in quick. Like it's the same as selling an iPad. Get in quick before you can't get the new iPad, or the new Cabbage Batch doll, or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle toy. You got to get in quick, or you're not going to get it. It's the oldest selling technique in the world. So how many suppliers are there in the market? Is this an issue of not enough suppliers or control of supply? We've got a couple of suppliers. We've got, obviously, Nutrien's a big one. RPL's a big one. Koch, uh, a few other ones. That, you know, there's, there's plenty of suppliers. Um, but, yeah, they all take a very similar approach to, you know, we don't like too much visibility on it. So like we we like we don't get it as much anymore. But when we first when we were well, we, Matt and I have been together for a long time now as a couple, and uh, <laughs> and so that's um, what seven years, Matt. Yeah. Uh, yep. Yep. So Matthew, when you joined Mercado, we started talking mm -hmm. about fertilizer then, and then we got a bit of controversy then. But then when we went to TM, we started talking about fertilizer again. Probably a, a bit bigger sort of more focused and we would get phone calls every time we wrote an article mm. saying you know yeah just trying to pressure us but it turns out it's really hard to pressure a bloody gruff uh argumentative scotsman and so mm -hmm. to do something well there was a phone call where you got told um that you didn't really understand how the market works i don't i don't, I don't, I don't understand markets <laughs> it's probably probably right you know let, let's go from competition, uh, sorry, from that's, that's, that is, competition. It is, it, is a good, it is a good point, though, that what you said about like this, the sales, like creating an artificial shortage. And I just want to remind people that if you don't subscribe to the Ag Watchers podcast now, you'll you'll miss out because it's limited, <laughs> limited volume. So, so sign up. You might not get to 2,201. <laughs> Probably not. Probably. Um. Probably cancelled for swearing or something. So the other thing that's always big in in terms of the competition and transparency space is supermarkets. Mm -hmm. Australia is known to have a very concentrated uh, grocery mm. sector. Uh, with Coles and Woolies, I think last time I looked had about seventy percent dominance of of the market, and you've had. This year already, David Little Proud's offered to help the Labor government bolster competition laws, uh, you know, so that farmers and suppliers, you know, aren't uh, 
subject to any sort of leverage uh, or, uh, as a result of market power, which I thought was interesting given they'd been in government for 11 years <laughs> and done not a lot. But anyway, let's put that aside. And the old competition uh, watchdog chairman, Rod Sims, has also had a crack this year talking about, you know, um, big supermarkets have likely used their market power to increase prices higher than necessary during this cost of living crisis. Why is competition so limited in the, in not only in supermarkets, but the whole, pretty much the whole supply chain in ag? You know, you would remember in the, well, maybe not Andrew, Andrew won't remember this in the 90s. He was um, wandering around in nappies, probably. Um, <laughs> and you were probably, Matt, he's still, probably, he's still wandering, he's still wandering around in nappies occasionally. Um, but Matt, that's you were a you were a wolf wolf of Wall Street, weren't you? Like not 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 in nineteen ninety commodity yeah, that's trader. That's it. Nineteen ninety nineteen ninety. I finished my final year of schooling, and then yeah, and then I went into nineteen ninety. I started primary school. Well, there you have it. Mm. Um, that's how old no, you are, Matt. But nineteen nineties mm. was competition policy was a thing, yeah. and they yeah. were going to open up. You know, the Keating government was going yep. to open up competition and the and banking, the banking thousands. sector, the banking, yeah. the four pillars, the four pillars policy, where they were going to look to remove some of that um, and make banking more competitive. There was a whole range of things, but I, I think part of it actually is it's a bit of a tyranny of low population. I think, right? We, we like, you know, we we don't have the size of population that you know Europe as a whole does, or the or America, North America does in terms of. So with that extra increased population it allows for a much more diverse broader marketplace where you can have multiple buyers and sellers i think that's part of it you know we're really only what are we 26 million people here it's only, um so, there's only 5.5 million in scotland mm, yeah but scotland's part of the you, you know, well, they, were, they, they, were part of, they were part of europe up until you know recent times um but, but they also still... have a much more regulated ag market too mm. Mm. So, so is, is there enough competition? I, I, I'm never quite sure about whether it's – like what have we got? We've got Coles, Woolies, IGAs, Aldi. Aldi. And then you're independent, you're independent type, yeah, you know, smaller, but they're nothing, right? They're the small nothing. ones, yeah. And that's – I guess that is – is there enough? Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. For a pot but, if, but, if, but would it be enough? That would be enough if there was definite sort of controls on, you know, how they act. If but I'm one. I'm wondering though if there's a like when you're talking about those type of service industries, whether it's a bank or a retail shop, um, you know, is there with you've got a population? It seems like four or five is about the magic number for how many big entities you can have. Four banks, four big banks, a couple of smaller ones, one airline. Well, yeah, ish. It, for a while there, we had what two or three significant airlines or four, but it's it's never been many more than that. So. I, I just think, given our population size, it's it's just not economic to have loads and loads of big competitors, uh, you know, trying to tussle it out for just a very small population size. Well, you look at you look at hardware. Well, what yeah? about input sellers? Like hard, hard, nutrients got a pretty big share of the market as far as input goes, um, and there's very few others really. Well, if you look at it, I would I would say if you look at the consolidation of that market, you've got elders on one side, then you've got nutrient on the other side. That would be a line share. Mm. That. Very mm. similar to the rest of it. Then you've got all the little ones like Delta, AWN. Mm. Uh, I'm running out of ones. Like CRT, but CRT is actually Nutrien. Mm. Air, air. Air is actually Elders. Yeah. Uh, you had Charlie Stewart down in Victoria, Charles Stewart. That's mm. now part of Elders. So you might end up seeing like Deltas and all these other ones actually being bought over by someone else. So maybe it's like, maybe you're right. It is sort of two big ones and a couple of small ones for every industry. Hmm. Yeah. Cause, yeah. cause, and without, without like, what is there? 80, 80,000 odd farm enterprises in Australia, 88,000 or something. Yeah. So, you know, again, there's only so much, there's only so much uh, available business that can come from those numbers. There's only so much, this is part of the reason why in the superannuation space or the investment space for like everyone bemoans, oh, why have we got all these foreign investors from Canada and elsewhere, you know, coming in France, the UK and investing in Australian ag when, when we should be doing it ourselves. But 
we've only got a small pool of domestic superannuation because we've only got a small population. There's not enough investment funds to go around to every different sector. So we need to have foreign investment in that manner because we're such a small country population-wise, right? Um, that's the tyranny of that. Having a small population means you don't, you know, you, you've got limitations on on what you can bring in regards all this competition. So what's the answer, Matt? We just give out tax, get, get tax, 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 more tax, people, bring, let more people in the country. Ban, you know, ban condoms. Swell, ban condoms. Swell, swell the country up to 80 million head of people and half people have to live out in the middle of the outback somewhere. Root for your country. <laughs> Peter Costello said something along those lines, not, not in so many words. Um, which brings me to farm advocacy. So recently we've seen uh, a change in NFF uh, presidency mm-hmm. um, and I think you had all three contestants mm. on your podcast. We did. Um, and uh, when David Jahinki got up, the Victorian uh, farmer uh, who's been on the NFF for a while and I think was also president of the VFF, the Victorian yep. Farmers Federation, he went the full hulk and muscled up and uh, there was a there was a campaign, an advertising campaign uh, to say, you know, the federal government was uh, basically doing farmers in the eye. Uh, what do you think of the whole farm advocacy space? Do you think, what do you think the strategy is here? Because we obviously didn't see that under the coalition government. What what's look, going on here? Look, I think so if you look at advocacy, yeah. Uh-huh. Look, I think obviously NFF new leadership Fiona was very different. I think they're going in and giving farmers what they want. A lot of farmers want a bit more proactive, more almost more aggressive sort of combative type behavior. I think we've got to be careful we don't end up like the French <laughs> uh, or the Dutch because it's sort of that doesn't get you anywhere. Stopping highways with Stop, cheese wheels. Well, just pissing off, uh, annoying everyone. Yeah, watch your what's your uh, potty mouth. Watch your potty mouth, Andrew. Sorry, sorry. We'll mafia. get to swearing. Um, but just annoying the general population because you you remember pre-COVID, just maybe six months before COVID, there was a lot of vegan protests. Or the extinction and, extinction rebellion ones. You well, mean? Well, not no. There was vegan specific vegan ones, in and they sort of. You know, put trucks in the middle of Melbourne. They closed down roads in Bacchus Marsh as well. And uh, it sort of, all that did was really annoy the general public. The general public is pretty apathetic to most things, I think. And once you start annoying the general public with closing down streets or whatever else, you're going to lose any of that sort of benefit. Because I think most people in Australia, most average Joes uh, and Jessies, uh, like farmers. But on the flip side, there's too many voices. You know, if you, if you look at advocacy, you've got NFF, which is there to represent farmers to federal government, effectively. Well, they're the peak body, aren't they? Yeah. They don't have members. The members, their members are um, generally SFOs, state state mm. organisations. Yeah. So, but then you, you start to look. Well, what is the like? How many organisations do you need? In, in that area. Like Richard, what's his name? Richard Heath and AFI did a report a couple of years ago and I think they identified more than 100 groups that represent farmers. Way too many. I reckon if you looked at the number of farmers, farming organizations that represent farmers, if you had 20, it would be too many. Like you need, you need regional, so state-based and national, but how many organizations do you need? How many voices? A diversity of opinions, though, because like not all farmers think the same way. Yeah, but that's what you get through your. But election, then that, uh, that's your election process. Mm, but then that 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 if there's too much diversity of opinion, then it fractures down to a. Rabbit. Ah, but too much <laughs> too much too much agreement kills the conversation. Let a thousand flowers bloom. That's isn't that, isn't that but, what Bob Catter said? But, Bob Catter said that regarding to Well, I think Nancy Jung said it first, actually. I think Bob Catter's one was better, let a thousand flowers bloom. But I'm not going to waste any time on it when there's a person in Queensland getting killed by a crocodile every five minutes or something like that. That was one of my favourite Bob Catter quotes. Do not not 
No, no, my favorite Bob Carter quote what? was about wearing socks and sandals? socks, socks and sandals, <laughs> and getting beaten up at school because of it. Oh. So uh, he's a he's a he's a very emotional guy. Hmm. Uh, advocacy, like I don't know, like because I look at it differently because I come from the UK where there's probably the NFU NFU Scotland sort of do all the advocacy, but you know, how many organizations do you need? Do you need sheep, wool, alpacas, do, 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 goats, goats, you know, and each, you know, like, is there a way to do it? Like, I, I look at Animals Australia, yeah? And they had some pretty dodgy stuff from their co-founder up this week, and I'm not going to mention that in the podcast because it's <laughs> very, very uh, bestial. Um, but the if you look at Animals Australia as an organization, yeah? They've got uh, the ideal advocacy model. You know, they bring in tons of money. They've got relatively low number of staff. They're able to pivot and move pretty quickly onto stuff. And they're able to focus their attention on ways of winning. Whereas if you have too many voices, I think you just have, you know, this fractured opinion and, and the, like it's disjointed. So I don't know. I don't know the answer. I'm sure. I'm sure Richard Heath and AFI and all the SFOs will be looking at what they do. And uh, so, so Murray, obviously the the campaign happened. I think it was like Wednesday or the Thursday, the first day mm-hmm. of the NFF conference, and Murray Watt came out. Uh, he was giving the keynote speech. He felt he felt he was a bit blindsided by that campaign. By he, the he looked like it by the sound of the speech. Um, he looked pretty pissed off, and you know, like advocacy, that's its job to tell truth to kind of power about what's happening amongst its members. Um, but what, what do you make of the job that Murray Watt's doing? Um, you had him on the podcast. What? How do you think? It's all going between farmers and government. Like, I don't think he'd be the Ag Minister for long. I think there'll be a reshuffle soon, and I think he'll be out of it. And I'll put my money on Raf Shikoni. <laughs> um, but the, we'll see, we'll see. Just, oh, I'm, just, I'm, oh, just rec- I'm just recording it for posterity. Um, I, don't, um, I, don't, but, I don't agree with all the policies, but I think generally he's, 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 he's accessible Pretty much, he's um, like Andrew was saying at the outset with regards to live sheep. He, he's, you know, if, he's, if, he, if he says something, he, he sticks to it. So you got to at least give him credit to come out and, and, and be open and honest around the, those things. Whether you agree with them or not, it's another story. But the foot and mouth disease, he was good on that. Mm. Yep. Yeah. The, the disaster response. Because remember, he's also the disaster response minister. Mm. On balance, on balance, just for his kind of how he's been, not necessarily what he's been doing, but how he's been doing it. In terms of how he's been managing it, agriculture plus the disaster, I'd give him probably a seven out of ten as a scorecard. I reckon he's not too bad. Um, what about David Littleproud and and the coalition? Are you are you noticing anything there? Any changes of tack? Um, I think it'd be much better fun to be in the opposition, just <laughs> just throwing bricks every now and then. I think that would be where I'd like to be. Like none of this getting in power, getting in the opposition is where you want to be for a couple of years. <laughs> Just, but I don't know. Like, what is, what is the ideal? F- like, maybe it's the Greens. <laughs> maybe the Greens should get a shot as, as in the ag, in the ag ministry. The Greens did try to um, to do some things on agriculture back when Christine Milne was leader. I think she's the daughter of a farmer, so she tried. But well, maybe maybe here's a solution. Yeah, couldn't get a go. We've yeah. got we've got Matt here. So Matthew is, you know, a card carrying Greens member. <laughs> I'm not all, sure. Uh, he, well, not, all, not since they called me. Not since they called me dodgy. I've, I've burnt up the card, ripped it up. Yeah. Well, it's like the Murray Darling Basin burning of the uh, yeah. Yep. Add that to your emissions poll, me burning up my Greens membership. I went outside and cut a tree down immediately. <laughs> The uh, so where were we? Where were we? David Lowproud. <laughs> Look, it'll be interesting to see, like, when when the government changes again, which it will do, not this term, but probably the term after, is what they do differently. And I think, 
And that's where I think there has to be, in advocacy, it has to be apolitical as well. Like, we know that most people in, in agriculture are probably card-carrying national liberal members, uh, but they've got to step back from that when they're actually doing advocacy because it's not it's about getting the, the right thing for farmers, not necessarily following your sort of political sort of proclivities. Does that make sense? Yeah, there's an interesting kind of theory that um, the government of the opposite flavour to your constituency is the one that can actually get some stuff done in the industry that uh, is required but can't be done by the by the um, politicians that you support. So an example would be um, Hawke's reforms around unions and wage bargaining while Hawke was in power. You know, it would be impossible to for a coalition to do that without bringing on a war with the unions, whereas, you know... Or, 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 um, or John, Howard, John, John yeah. Howard with his gun, yeah, that, that what he did there was um, something that probably couldn't have been done by Labor. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Tim Fisher's support of that strategy um, was essential to, you know, that getting across the line and now is, you know, Howard names it as his most important reform when, when he was in government. So there's an interesting thing there. Um, let's go to carbon markets. <laughs> we'll get rid of some of the controversial stuff and go to the easy stuff. Let's go to the easy stuff, right? Yeah. Every week. In my inbox, I get something about, you know, do you want to um, get paid for building carbon in your soil? Do you, you know, lock up this part portion or, you know, all of this sort of uh, movement towards environmental service markets? Where are we at now with that? Like what's your, are you watching the numbers closely on how many accus are getting sold in the farm sector and whether, do you have a sense of whether it's shaking down a bit in terms of um, where farmers are at? Because people I talk to, uh, including some experts say, I wouldn't be selling anything right now. Like I'd be getting a measurement of your mm. car- carbon footprint on farm, but I wouldn't be selling anything because you're going to need, for example, carbon neutrality to get into European markets uh, and that will sort of spread down the track. What's your, What are your thoughts, both of you, on that? I would say there's a lot of... No, you go, Matt. You're a buddy, Greeny. This is your area. Well, I'd agree with what Gabby just said there. That um, going absolutely, you need to get a measurement of what your, what you know, where your baseline is, um, and and start monitoring as you know and collecting that data. But when it comes to the trading of that carbon, I would be very, very hesitant because I think that that it's it's an industry that's still in its infancy and it's full of. It reminds me a little bit. I think I wrote about it in that. you know, with regards to the transparency article, when I was in the currency game, when the, when the Aussie floated um, in '83, and I came to the, the, the trade a little bit after that, but it was still a very unsophisticated market, that currency market. And when there's when there's not very sophisticated players, that there's an imba- and there's an imbalance of information like there is in the carbon market as well, um, that that allows for people to get ripped off fairly easily. And I think that's a lot of what's happening at the moment when it looks when it comes to some of those contracts that there's a lot of um, Snake oil sales. Have you, have, do, do you guys, Matt, you probably don't. You don't have Instagram, do you? Me, no. No, no. I'm too busy on TikTok, mate. Too TikTok, yeah. Mm. And Gabby, you'll have, you're young. You're in your 20s, so you'll have Instagram. <laughs> uh, but, like, you get all these videos pop up, these advertised videos, yeah? Like, you can be a millionaire if you want to be. There's always Americans, like Tony Robbins-type people. Like, you know, just buy a house and Airbnb every bedroom. Airbnb the utility room, blah, 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 blah. It's risk-free money. And it's always, it's risk-free money. Like money for jam, risk-free. And that's just nonsense on stilts because it's exactly the same when you get like these carbon markets. Like I went a couple of years ago to a bunch of presentations with people in carbon markets and, and I did a module at uni on carbon trading. Uh, so I'm qualified to discuss this point. Um, but you go to these, these sort of presentations and it was all about, or we can give you huge amounts of money and zero risk. Just set and forget. You don't have to worry about it. And yeah. I 
and then immediately in my head, I was like, yeah, there's no such thing as a risk-free trade in any market. Like, you know, that from FX, Matt, or mm-hmm. trading or pigs. Like, there's nothing risk-free. Um, and so I sort of started looking into it, and I was like, well, what about this? What about that? What happens if this happens? What happens if you have a fire? What happens if the government changes the policy? And it's just, to me, it's a juvenile market. It's an immature market. And it's one that, yeah, go and get the, uh, go and get the, go and get the credits, collect them, store them or whatever, measure them, but don't sell them because at the moment, the money's a pittance anyway. You guys are market guys, right? So I had a look at the clean energy regulator, uh, fact sheet so this is a soil carbon project fact sheet and they talk about uh your project must store carbon for 25 or 100 years to deliver a long-term benefit to the atmosphere so what do you think about contracts that run that long like is it are there any contracts that do run that long apart from maybe 25 years on a house mortgage but like is there any contract Uh, i'm I'm going to sign up to it's a bad thing to sign up for a hundred-year contract when you're Scottish and the life expectancy is fifty-two. <laughs> but um, you know, I, I just, yeah, like I guess. But going back to from a Mark's point of view, like long-term contracts are a risk because mm. you don't know what changes. What happens if if you have some issue, you have drought, and you're no longer sequestering carbon, and so you actually have to pay out carbon for argument's sake, but. The other thing as well is like the money's not good enough. Like you're talking sub fifty dollars on average per ton for ACCU over the last five years, probably closer to twenty if we took it on average. So let's call it twenty dollars. Let's say you're going to get fifty thousand dollars, yeah, for your farm. Some farms that might be a lot of money, but a lot of farms that's not going to be a lot of money. It's, it's not even a Land Cruiser. It's not even a Hilux nowadays. So. What is the point in doing it when you're going to have to? It's not money for you're not getting that money for nothing. You have to pay something else out into. Usually, you're going to have to pay fifty percent of that out to an aggregator, and then you're going to have to pay fees and you're going to have to manage it. You have to look after it. But I think carbon markets are a good thing because the government is going to mandate more and more industries to buy carbon or buy carbon offsets. So the price is only going to go up because the supply is not really rising. The supply of carbon offsets isn't really rising, but the demand for them is going to rise. We saw that during the COVID times when people switched from gas to coal in Europe. So I think I would be holding off on them until the demand outstrips supply and you can get $100, $200 a ton for it, not $20 and $19. That's crap. I guess the thing that worries me is you can talk about markets and, yes, I, like there's no doubt people will make money out of it. It's, it's you know. At, it's not the farmers, though. At certain stages, <laughs> but it's often not the farmers. But the underlying foundation, the reason for doing it, is that you're actually reducing emissions. Like yeah. are you confident that this market will ultimately reduce emissions? or no, is absolutely not. Uh, Smoke no. and mirrors and pee and thimbles. What I'd say was, well, one thing, and sorry if I'm talking too much, Matthew, uh, but one of the things we'd say is, at the moment, it's the it's the carrot approach. We'll give you a bit of money, you sequester carbon. But nobody's really doing it. Like, if you look at the number of farmers actually sequestering carbon and recording it, it's minimal. Yeah, they, they might be doing carbon sequestering things like minimum till, no till, which actually does sequester carbon, but they're not actually getting rewarded for it. But I think at some point, I reckon by the end of this decade, the government will say, we're going to start using the stick approach. And you have to do this. It won't be a thing of we're going to use a market mechanism, a voluntary market mechanism. We're going to use a compulsory record your carbon and you might not even get paid for it. It'll Which just... might be why you want to keep your accus, yeah? Yeah. As a as a as a global society too, we've been pretty much aware of global warming since the seventies, right? So we're talking fifty years now where we've just continued to as is it 50, a, as a, is it fifty years ago the seventies. Yeah, mate, yeah, I know. Um so 
and we, when, look, you're, we just, when you were wearing we, bell bottoms and listening to ABBA. That's it. That's it, mate. Bay, Bay City Rollers. That's my sisters love the Bay City Rollers. They loved um, good Scottish tartan wearing band. It sold sold more albums than the Beatles. Did they? The Bay City Rollers. I'm going to Google that. Yeah. It might be a Scottish myth. <laughs> Could be. Um, it sounds like it might be a myth. Um, like Loch Ness monster. Oh, now we're going to get some complaints, aren't we? Um, but no, I, getting back to that, we we as a global society, I think, are incredibly poor at doing what we need to do in terms of emissions because there's some hard decisions that need to be made, and uh, carbon markets aren't going to solve it. I think we're talking, you know, and we're probably going to get to a stage like Andrew was saying too that we're we're not going to stop at a 1.5 percent warming. Um, we're going to continue to see issues occurring over the next few decades because we won't be able to stop globally. Um, and then we'll get to a stage where we'll have to start doing something because we're going to be, you know, going down a pretty horrible pathway. But then, but then, you know, if you get to these tipping points they refer to in terms of what happens to global climate patterns and stuff, that it might then be a 50 or an 80-year process to try and reverse the damage. That's what I think we're going to do. I don't think carbon markets are going to solve anything. Hmm. Interesting. And finally, I want to end on a sweary note. I'm not... <laughs> on the platform that was formerly known as Twitter much anymore, but um, I believe there was a little bit of a controversy. And it wasn't us. No, we don't. And it didn't involve you. No. And I reckon it's all Tell us what happened. Tell us what happened why. Well, here's here's my view of the story, yeah? Yeah. So a couple of years ago in... What year is it? You can tell me. A couple of years ago, uh, somebody released a book. Oh, yes. Right? Yes. Somebody released a book. And, with an expletive, uh, 21, with an ex- 21. With an expletive in the title. Yeah, huh? right here. Yeah. That was released. Disgraceful and, disgraceful language coming from a lady. And and we... Uh, and, and, I'm no lady. And, and I think we, we might have had... Uh, you on the podcast to talk about it, and that was the yeah. first thing we raised about was the inappropriate language, yeah. and and the complaints. Because your aunt is it your aunt that listens? Yeah, yeah. Aunt, Auntie, Auntie, Julie. Auntie Julie. She was yeah. just disgusted by by the, the sort of the language used. So you wouldn't get away with that in a proper country like the UK because people because people don't people people are known in Scotland to hardly ever swear, yeah. never swear. Like yeah. you notice yeah. most of the Billy most... Connolly. Yeah, yeah, number one. So yeah, I think that. Look, I think that's an interesting sort of thing is like language. Like it was, I think Gillian Fennell had swore a few times in, in tweets and then somebody complained about the swearing and it was didn't look good in the industry. But at the end of the day, she works for herself. She can do what they... Do you reckon, though, they would say that with a bloke? Mm, I, I don't, don't yeah, I, yeah. I don't that's know. What I, 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 I don't know. Yeah. But, I would hope that I would hope that it's not just because it's a, you know a lady with a strong opinion that sometimes swears and that's more the issue rather than the swearing. I don't know. It's hard to tell what motivates a person, but I mean I don't. But I think you know, it, it all it all was a domino effect from the release of this book, which mm. which sort of gave, gave it gave the people book. the power to swear. Yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah. and so that's yeah. that, this is the end result: a fractured agricultural industry because and, of. Yeah, because a reputable reputable person such as Gabriel Chan if allowed could, open open the what was open Pandora's open, box open the fl- open the sluice gates open the <laughs> floodgates of disgusting language and inappropriate behaviour. And it's so interesting, though, isn't it? How the how culturally we've become so used to swearing. Mine isn't the only book with the word you know fuck on the cover. Um, so. It's such a thing in media and politics. You know, there's people swear all the time. Politicians swear all the time. Journalists swear all the time. And it's become quite accepted amongst uh, certain look, I think, lower circles perhaps. Well, it's, um, it's, it's, it's interesting because I've read the scientific literature on swearing. No way. Really? It's a really uh-huh. good book. Called... But do people study that stuff? Yeah, mm. people study everything. Some, somebody's studying everything. But... So what do they say? So this, it was interesting because it's a really good book and I recommend it to everyone. It's called Black Sheep by Richard someone who's a psychologist and he goes through all of the bad things that people do 
and why there's actually reasons that it can be good, like alcohol. There's good bit. There's too much alcohol is bad, but a little bit of alcohol is actually good for you. Creativity, you know, uh, your thought process are better after two two glasses of red. Uh, hence why I've got two glasses of red at hand at all times. <laughs> um, but the swearing one was actually really interesting um, because in, there's an increase about two percent of language is swearing nowadays on a daily basis. Hang uh, on, how much is that? 2%. 2%. 2%, 2%, 2%, 2%, 2% of just words like the, uttered yeah. are swear words. In conversation. Just like, just like the live export trade. It's yeah. a sheep. About 2%. But anyway, so so what it, what it said was like, they did research into who swears. And so I don't use, I don't like class politics, but lower class people swear more often. Upper class people swear more often. And, well, that and that's that, me. That, that's us, upper class. Yeah, all <laughs> of them. But but so I looked at it from like a managerial context in like a business place, you would find lower level people in businesses would swear more often, higher up people would swear more often, but the middle ground would swear very little. But it was them aiming oh. they were aiming to get into the upper class. Hmm. The upper class people didn't give a monkeys or didn't give an F and lower class didn't give an F. So that's the, really interesting. And well, so that tells me a lot about the Australian parliament. And then a lot of it was around passion. Like when people are articulating something and they've got a lot of passion for something, they can tend to swear a little bit more. It, it's an, swearing is an amorphic. How many times do you cut your finger or stubbed your toe? You're not going to say, oh, golly gosh. You're gonna say, "Are oh, you f and f?" <laughs> but you're, but that's just that's just the natural way. And, and swearing, even if you don't swear, if you hurt yourself, you tend to swear. Look, in many facets of life, people who don't swear will swear quite a lot, from hurting themselves to pleasure. I wonder if it's also family culture, though, because my I come from a long line of swearers. So yeah, oh, yeah, I think so. Um, so Mythbusters used to swear. Mythbusters showed as well from a scientific perspective that you you can deal with pain more if you mm -hmm. if you swear and it relieves stress more if you swear. So from a health and psychological perspective, it's probably a benefit to be able to do it. But it went it went in childbirth. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Sex. <laughs> Is that pain? Well, pleasure as well. You know, it's. It, it, it's it's words that come out when you're in highly emotive states. You know, everyone. I still find I still find though, even for people that swear or, or that like, there's also categories of what like some people would would consider in the old days, damn or shit, damn. Is, you God, know, or, God, bu or bugger or bugger. That well, used to be, bugger. Right? I always feel a bit worried about using the word bugger because it is. The connotations of bugger is pretty. There was a Toyota ad where they had the dog saying bugger, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and, that, and then people got really annoyed by that because they were considering. So it's what people consider to be a swear word. My son, when he was in, in prep in primary school, we got called in because he, he was swearing at prep. And and apparently he said shit at the locker because he, he bent up and hit his head on the locker and said shit. And some little kid told him off and we got called in. And well, I said, maybe, what you well, maybe that's the parenting. <laughs> I said in our household, shit's not a swear word. Um, so the teacher it's didn't know where to, yeah, didn't know where to go with that one. But but I find even for people that swear, there's a there's a distinct. It's like a Vegemite group of people. Some people with regards to the c word. Um, that's one that even for some swear people that swear, they they won't they don't they're not comfortable with that being said openly and publicly. Which I don't, I don't kind of understand the difference. If you can say fuck, why can't you say cunt? I don't know, but well, see, now Gabby just held her head, right? Um, it's okay yeah. because our our podcast is actually approved for expletives on uh, oh, on, really? on, on, oh, on iTunes. Good. That's good. Um, but <laughs> I don't but, see. But that, but that word in particular, that does that does yeah, divide. Yeah, that does divide even swearing people. But you, fella... you got to, you got to, America, yeah. Mm. You, you, you compare Scottish people. I think the Scottish people are culturally very similar to Australians. Um, 
and the C word is common in Scotland and the C word is common in Australia. Mm. You go to the US or England, that C word is is not in use. Um, I don't personally use it that often. In a recorded uh, platform. Mm. Um, it's my, it's my favourite. It's my favourite swear word of all. What? You heard me say it already. My favourite swear word is, or insult, is to call somebody gleekit. I think that's the best Scottish one. That's not even... That's, it's, you it's, not, out, it's, not, it's not a swear word, but gleekit. You pull out all these, you put out all these words that aren't even real words, like out with. Yeah. You put all those up because we can't fact check you. <laughs> He's got a gleekit face. You know? And... Remember, English is not my first language, so yeah, it's not mine either. Gutter is mine first language. I grew up yeah. in Daniel. So, going back to the point, yeah, because this is obviously not really an agricultural thing. It's up to well, the it, is, it is. It is because it is Gillian, in the shipyards. It is, and but, Gillian Fennell. Gillian Fennell has taken the mantle from Gabby Chan and, and made it a thing again. Made it a, a topic of discussion. So, you know, it is an agricultural thing, but. All I think about it is it's up to each individual how they portray themselves and what they do. And uh, let a thousand blossoms bloom. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to waste any time on it. But it's just, like, it's, it's down to the individual. Like, at the end of the day, if people are offended by an individual's behavior, then they're not going to deal with that person. But I don't know if it necessarily has a huge impact across the whole industry, one individual's uh, speech or patterns of speech. Okay, so if we're going to finish off, I'd like both of you to say goodbye to the listeners in your most sweary language. <laughs> I dare you. <laughs> I'll see uh, you cunts when you got nothing on. Because <laughs> I don't swear, so I can't do it. Yeah. Uh, Thank you yeah. very much, listeners. I'm hoping that last line will be cut out. It won't be. It won't be. Oh God! Get yourself a bloody editor, will you? That was, meant to be, that was that was meant to be your role. <laughs> <laughs>